0: Church history. As you begin to see directions that ministries and denominations and individuals go based on this understanding, this philosophy of which is more important, holiness or love. A couple examples, and I'm just going to give like kind of sweeping generalities of examples. So I'm sure it's not true of everybody. You could probably find some error in it. But a couple examples of, on the one hand, when holiness becomes the focus, in, in the sense that holiness alone is what God is worried about, that becomes central. Then you end up with a, a movement, a, a church orientation that is kind of hyper conservative, standard driven. Here is my list of things that I must do and I must keep. And anyone who disagrees with this ever-growing list, I separate from. And you kind of have this this growing movement of, okay, here is the holiness of God. And here's how that works out in my life, is... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and goes down. And then before long, these these standards of holiness, driven by a, a genuine pursuit for purity and holiness, begin with clear biblical standards and clear biblical commands taken out, but then begin to add some matters of conviction and conscience, and then begin to add some matters of preference. And before long, your standard of holiness is looks like you must be white, middle-class American in order to be holy. And that's your list. And if you're any different than that, then... And churches grow in that direction. Then on the other hand, you have those who kind of of think, okay, love is really what it's about. And then you have churches, something like the emergent church of, of today, where they've really laid aside the idea of absolute truth and absolute standard of right is a bit archaic and even if there is absolute truth it's not really worth your time to worry about it what we need to be concerned about is is justice and, and the needy and the hurting and make sure that all of our energy all of our time is going to just showing love showing the love of jesus to others so then what you have is kind of a, a rejection of the idea of making disciples, of training, of teaching, and transitioning more into an idea of just, of just showing kindness and sharing and being loving. You dismiss the idea of, of sacraments and, and even the whole idea of gathering together for worship as, you know, that's not really what we're called to do. We're called to go out and be out there. The debate's not new. We'll see in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5 is where a lot of our passage, a lot of our text will come from this morning for the sermon. In the New Testament, they're dealing with it already. It starts with a wrong dichotomy that God has to choose whether he's going to be holiness or love. In the book study, Through Knowing God, we've looked at how God is simultaneously all of his attributes that God doesn't have to decide to set aside holiness in order to show love, or vice versa. And hence for us, it becomes like a, a false dichotomy to think we we set aside holiness if we're going to be loving, but if we're going to be loving, then we just have to discard holiness. Instead of seeing they serve together, they work together to produce what God is calling us to. And one of the big tragedies in, in this debate is that the law has been taken from its, its intended use, how it is set up in Scripture, how Pastor Adams has explained to us again and again the law and the gospel and how the, the law serves as that mirror that stands in front of us and points us to the fact that we fall desperately short and we need a Savior. And then it sends us to the gospel where we find righteousness and favor through the accomplishment of Christ only to then be turned back again to the law to know how then do we walk obediently unto our God in love. But in this debate, the law has kind of been ripped from its intended purpose and just been used for whatever means, whatever purpose fits. So, if holiness is your central concern now the law is just part of that list of things that you do in order to earn favor with god now they probably wouldn't say saving favor they would say you're saved by grace alone but it still earns favor with god you're you're better than the person beside you if you can keep that law you're at least going to be more impressive to the people around you and at least at the very minimum like god's going to like you more than someone else if you can at least keep the law and you begin to earn favor Or it's ripped out of its context the other way. The law is completely, all of its strength and its force and the weight of the glory of God that rests upon calling his creation, his redeemed servants to obedience is taken away. And you take kind of the New Testament summation of love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself and just kind of then a loose idea of how then do I be nice to other people? And that kind of becomes how you use the law. I think it's easy to kind of stand back and when you paint broad generalities like I just did, you can quickly see the errors in it, right? You see like, oh man, there's a major piece missing or a major piece missing. And in the grand scope of things, if you, when you lay it out and say that's the philosophy, yeah, there's obvious errors. But I think when it gets a little bit closer to home in smaller ways and smaller decisions you make and attitudes you have, you begin to see that we fall prey to these two types of thinking often in our own life. That often the law of God, the commands of God in the scripture become really just a checklist of things for us to externally conform to. to, you know, please God and impress others. And there's no real digging into seeing what the truth is that lies in it in the Scripture and getting to know God and fall in love with God. You'd be transformed to obey God. It's just, okay, I can check this off my list. I did this. Boom. Today, I didn't murder. I can check that off my list. All right. Or sometimes we begin to fall prey that we get motivated to to serve others, to love others, to seek justice, all good things. But at the cost of giving little attention to our own faithfulness and our own obedience before God, so that the weight and the glory and the magnificence and the depth of God never really has any weight and rest upon us. We're much more concerned with just helping someone in need. With nothing really lying behind it. If you look in Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse verse 13, and we'll work down through verse 22, and that will serve as our text. We are headed to you shall not murder. That's our command for today. I don't know, it seems a little easier, right, than like last week, honor your father and mother and all the complexities of that. You get the you shall not murder, and it's like, okay, I read it, can I go home, I haven't murdered, or if I have, I won't again, or whatever it might be. <laughs> but I want to back us up just a little bit and see both the external conformity that action is taken with this command, and the internal, that the heart is transformed and changed by the power of the Spirit, as we look at the mirror of the law again. I want to start with the idea of salt and light. You've probably heard a call to be salt and to be light. I'll just go ahead and acknowledge there's someone crying. You're going to hear it all throughout the service. It comes and goes. So I just encourage everyone, don't be nervous about it. It just happens. I'm going to roll with it, and we'll all be fine. So as long as we just acknowledge it, we all feel better about it, right? Everyone's trying to guess whose kid it is, right? Salt and light. And salt and light kind of give us the idea, And, and Jesus uses this here in his Sermon on the Mount to set up for us getting to the command, you shall not murder. So he starts with salt and light. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this idea of love, putting action to our faith, or the idea of holiness, having a substance and a reverence, here as Jesus gets ready to introduce us to the law, and specifically to the command to do not murder. He sets it up with salt and light. And the first thing we see about the salt and light is there has to be real substance to it. He says, what good is your salt if it's lost its savor, if it's lost its saltiness? It's good for nothing. You might as well just, all your action, all that that takes place, if you've lost all your saltiness and savor, all you're good for is just to be thrown on the ground and trampled underfoot. It's no good at all. What good is, is a light that burns so, so dimly it doesn't help anybody? There has to be something unique, something different, something real and substantive about you. So that when you're called to love, when you're called to go engage and help the needy, what makes your service salt and light? What makes it any different than the government helping someone? How, how is it salt? How is it light? It has to have saltiness and savor. It has to have some substance, something real behind it that makes it attractive, that makes it useful. So we see, to be salt and light to the world, there has to be some real substance. You can't skip the step of, of holiness and just go in activity, in activity of love. There has to be real holiness. And we'll see how the law works in us to bring forth that holiness. But secondly, we also see with salt and light that there must be contact. You have to be in contact with the world. (laughs) What good is salt if it's just sitting there in the shaker and never gets poured on the fish or the meat? Or if, you know, I light a candle in a really bright lighted room. for salt to really have its effect, it has to come into contact. It has to be bumping up against what it's meant to bring bring savor to, to bring freshness to. The light has to be in darkness to shine brightly. And so we see this second aspect of, it just can't be holiness in the sense of, you know, I have so much substance to who I am. I have this light that's burning brightly, but I'm going to stay hidden under this bushel. I'm never going to come into contact with anyone who thinks differently than me. I'm going to keep myself completely fortified from the world around me. That's the idea of in the world, but not of the world. And so we see Jesus starts with this example, this illustration of salt and light, and we learn two things from it. We see the holiness and the love. There must be substance, but it must come into contact with the world. There must be action that moves forward from it. And then we see the central role of the law as we continue there in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one Yoda, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we see that to be salt, and to be light, to be, to be different, to have something unique about us, to have some substance to us that is attractive to the world around us, that is obviously different, that is going to shine brightly in darkness. And then at the same time, to take then that, that light, that transforming work of the Spirit in our own hearts, and then go out into the world and put it into action. To not just stay huddled up and keep it to yourself, but to be bumping into darkness constantly, so that that light is shining brightly. How is that going to take place? And Jesus immediately moves to the law. Look to the law. This is what is going to make you unique in the world. This is what's going to set you apart. And not in the sense that it removes you from the world, but so that as you live this life, it sets you apart. He's quick to remind us that it's, it's not setting us apart and that if we keep the law well enough, then we'll be justified. This morning, a lot of our songs, the catechism, everything, explain the exact opposite. Christ alone. Jesus Christ accomplished. He fulfilled. Jesus says your righteousness would have to far exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order if you thought you were going to enter heaven on your own basis. It's not going to happen. So it's not a sense of, of being justified, of making yourself right with Christ. It's a sense of children of the kingdom now living this life in such a way that there is uniqueness, there is substance, there is holiness to it. And then it burns brightly as it goes forward in action to others. All right, so with that then as our backdrop just a few minutes looking then at the command you shall not murder. Exodus 20 as we work our way through it's a bit of it feels like a bit of a transition here in the commandments. I don't know if it's because all the first ones seem like kind of uniquely Christian You shall not murder seems kind of more like a universal ethic. Generally, people just think you shouldn't murder. And so I think we can tend to think like, well, that's just sort of common. That's like, you know, easier to keep than some of the others. Let's look a little more closely at the idea you shall not murder. For some of you, your translation might say you shall not kill. Different translations read it differently. The word there used in Exodus, the word for kill, is the, the Hebrew word translated rahaz, R-A-H-A-Z. If you don't care at all, that's fine. Some people really like those word nuances. but That's kind of the Hebrew word. It's used 43 times in the Old Testament. And every time the word is used there, it, it is very uniquely and precisely used for the illegal taking of life. It is specifically murder. So, a lot of times you will see the translation to kill, but it has a unique idea. Kill, that's a fine translation, but it has a unique idea that when it uses that specific word to speak of killing, it is the one who is either accused of taking life or it is the illegal taking of life. It's never used of killing in war or killing in a judicial type of execution. There's a different, more general word used in the Old Testament hundreds of times for that. And so there becomes a pretty clear distinction. In Numbers 35, 19, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot it down, you see both words used there. Um, there's someone who is being tried for murder, and it says, the, mur- the murderer shall certainly be put to death, or the killer shall certainly be killed. And the first word is the murderer there is the idea of the one who illegally kills people shall be put to, and then the more general word for death. I say all that just to say some, a lot of commentaries will kind of take this and make an argument for pacifism. And that's not what this text is teaching. Politically, your view on that, if it's going to come from somewhere, it just needs to come from somewhere else than Exodus chapter 20. Immediately... There are some, within the text itself, some immediate kind of um, nuancing of it. So it says, you shall not murder. It's that specific word that's used there. In Exodus 22, as you, well, you just flip over to Exodus 22 if you want, or you can just listen, however. There's an immediate nuance is made. Exodus 22, verses 1 and 2. It says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him And so as he gives kind of a further explanation of the law, that's what he's doing here, is how the law works out in your life, he already kind of makes a little caveat that if if someone is breaking into you, if someone is bringing harm to your family, if if your life is is put in jeopardy here, someone breaks in, and that person is killed in a self-defense type of way, you won't be guilty. So there's already a bit of a caveat. If you look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, you see a lot where it speaks about civil authority and their right both for a defense of country, for war, or civil execution. So just to start, it's not a blanket statement of all killing is wrong It's specific to murder. So why is this? Where does the strength come? Thou shalt not murder. First, we know that God is the author of life, and that's where it begins with. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the author of life. But then why specifically to, to human beings? You know, why can you raise cows and butcher them or cut down timber? And it's because man is made in the image of God. There's a uniqueness to human life. It's the pinnacle of God's creation. As you get to Genesis chapter 1, as God comes through, you see that, and I'll just read a couple of verses, Genesis 1, 26-28, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, and in after our likeness, and let us have dominion over the fish and the sea, over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him, male and female, he created them. God created humans in his image as the pinnacle of his creation with a unique ability to relate both to one another and to God. He created them with a specific purpose to be fruitful and multiply, to spread that image of God throughout the garden sanctuary, to spread the garden sanctuary throughout the world with a certain task and a certain purpose of naming the animals, of having dominion, with an accountability before God of of, uh, volition and a clear distinction of right and wrong and don't do this and do this. So there's a specific uh, uniqueness to human life. Maybe I'm hitting that harder than you think, but it comes back to the, the image of God. We we're made in God's image, so that it should kill in us the idea that one life is worth more than another life, as if the color of your skin brings you more worth or value. Or the, the number on your paycheck gives you more worth and value before God. Your value and your worth and your dignity is that you bear the image of the Creator. At first it seems like, okay, no murder. That's, that's fairly simple. That's in, in the government. That's sort of the law of the land. But as human life is becoming less and less valued, As we forget the image of God and the dignity and the worth that is innate within us because we are made in God's image, then we start to nuance murder, don't we? And we start to nuance life. We talked about the Women's Choice Network already, the cause of abortion. Thousands of babies murdered, it's life being taken. And here's where we begin to see action needs to be taken. We see that it moves beyond just don't murder into somehow positively promoting and protecting life. How can we positively promote and protect life? Not just that we silently stay on the sideline, don't participate in murder. How do we positively then move forward promoting and protecting life Abortion is a fight that is worth church getting involved in. We promote, not from a political stance of it's our platform or our whatever, from the Bible that that child has life in the image of God and it is murder to take that child's life. Listen to just some of these, these facts real quickly. I took some of these from, I took all this from the Planned Parenthood website. So it's not something that's like right wing trying to destroy it. It's from Planned Parenthood's website itself. And the beginning of this year, they kind of wrote a report reviewing 2010 through 2012 It says, 18 local Planned Parenthood affiliates across the country are recognized as leaders in teen pregnancy prevention and solution, as they are selected by the Department of Health and Human Services to receive new grant funding as part of President Obama's teen pregnancy initiative. As trusted providers of sex education, the 18 selected affiliates are awarded grants, or part of winning a grant, totaling over $19 million. Planned Parenthood reported a record number of abortions in 2012 as America's largest abortion provider. By year end, Planned Parenthood brought, brought their three-year total to 995,687, just under a million, abortions, according to the annual report. They celebrate the unparalleled advancement for women's health. Although President Barack Obama initially signed an executive order in 2010 promising not to fund abortion with federal tax dollars, Planned Parenthood reported a record $542 million in taxpayer funding. Then this is their description here. It says, there are two kinds of abortion in the U.S., in clinic abortion and the abortion pill. Abortions are very common. In fact, one out of four women in the U.S. have an abortion by the time they are 45 years old. That's the fact from their website. If you are pregnant, you have options. If you are trying to decide if abortion is the right choice for you, you probably have many things to think about and we can help. If you are under 18, your state may require one or both of your parents to give permission for your abortion or to at least be told of your decision prior to abortion. However, in most states, you can ask a judge to to excuse you from these requirements. I'm not acting like there's not some complexities to it. I understand rape and women whose life is put in jeopardy. So I'm not saying that there's zero complexities to think about. But the answer is simple. You're not the author of life. That baby is made in the image of God. Do not murder. It doesn't matter if it's going to be born with great disease and deformity. It's made in the image of God, it has dignity, value, and worth. It doesn't matter if you know it wasn't planned and you can't really afford it, if it's going to change the plans for the rest of your life. You were not the author of life. I would just encourage you. It's hard when you think through these things, it can it can bring up some, <laughs> some righteous anger in you. We recently in our small group went through a book called Um Unfashionable. And, It talks about how to be a community that lives for God, how you live differently. One thing he says is we should be an angry community. Well, how should we do that? He says it's culturally excusable and even fashionable in our world for people to get angry because their purpose has been thwarted, their desires squelched, their preferences ignored. It's stylish for people to get mad because they've been disrespected, discomforted, or inconvenienced. But the church is to exhibit an unfashionable type of anger, a God-centered anger goes on to say, we are to be the people who hate the things God hates, the way God hates them for the reason that, that God hates them. Our anger is to be a grieving anger, one that shows itself in action, compassion, and love. So instead of people just knowing we're angry about something, how do they see we're grieved about it? How does it take the shape of action, compassion, and love? You know, big causes that we've been bringing to your attention, whether it's human trafficking or, or abortion, they're things you feel like, how do I do anything about that? We can pray for it. And then we find, locate people who are trained to do the most possible that they can Women's Choice Network, I encourage you to learn a little about that ministry. I encourage you to, to support it, to come to the fundraising banquet, to get behind things like that. When this lady comes um, in a, a week and a half from now, uh, we should be here for that, to hear what she has to say, to be educated on it, to feel how we can get behind and support and fight human trafficking, sex slavery, of these little 12- to 14-year-old girls. It's got to take more than just anger and words and move into action. Move into love that takes action of holiness and love. Back in Matthew, we'll expand what it means here to not murder and then we'll be done. Hope you're seeing it grow, both the holiness... And the love that grows out of seeing the law of God. So Jesus goes on to explain. I think he picks here, you shall not murder, because it's kind of like our context, where it maybe feels like, okay, that's the easiest one to keep. So he already tells us in verse 20, there's no law that you're keeping. On your own, you will earn no righteousness. So he gets to verse 21 of chapter 5, and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow, that really amps it up, doesn't it? (laughs) No longer is it just actual physical injury. that means we've broken the commandment. It's hatred, scorn, malice, insults, bitterness. We've just broken the commandment. (laughs) Homicide is violent and produces death, but so does bitterness and hatred. Abortion kills and takes away life. But so does gossip destroys people. Sex slavery debases those who are made in the image of God and leads to death. But so does violent language and insults just carelessly thrown around. Literally, that idea there in verse twenty-two. It says, "Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire." That's looking at someone and being like, "You idiot." Or maybe you get home from work and it's like the first 20 minutes is just going off to your spouse about how everyone at work is an idiot except for you. Your boss is a moron. This person's a moron. Don't look at me like you've never done that before. Come on. You did it last week. Or you get with your buddy and start just, my wife this, or my husband this. Attacking and injuring someone is violence and disobedience. So is wishing for or celebrating someone's destruction and demise. Have you ever been there where you're kind to someone's face, but you're like, oh, I hope they fall on their face? Boy, will I celebrate when they come crashing down. That's self centered, self serving anger. <laughs> That's not grieving anger because God's name is under attack. Jesus amps it up. Okay, you look at the law and you think, do not murder. Okay, I've already taken one rung towards righteousness with God. I'm on my way up the ladder. As Adam said, it's not a ladder to God, it's a mirror. And you take, you shall not murder. And here's what it means. Do you have the spear in the heart of violence? Are you a gossip? Are you, are you killing someone's testimony? Are you slandering? Are you going home and just going off on everybody? So Jesus says, you'll do that and you are guilty of murder. I'm not saying all of it just to kind of like heap guilt upon you. But to take us back to the rightful use of the law, that we look at it and we see it as a mirror. And we don't just get to pick up murder and carved images. I'm not going to carve any images and I'm not going to murder. We see the heart that lies behind it we see how have we positively taken it and put love to the positive action. How have we promoted and and protected life? How is our hard attitude and action one that isn't one of violence? We look at that and we realize we fall so far short of God in every way and that drives us back to the gospel. That favor with Christ is through Christ alone. It's his righteousness by faith. He's accomplished it for us. And then that takes us again and we see then, how do we be salt and how do we light? How is there substance and holiness, uniqueness to who we are? And how do our actions go out and bump into the world and make a difference? And we see that the law now serves us in that way. How do I not have a heart of murder Fight a violent spirit towards others. Applications. How do we not have a heart of murder? Stop yourself when you go home and start to go off on everybody. Fight the evil of racism or classism. That somehow your sins are less offensive to God than someone else's sins. Or your culture sins are less offensive to God than someone else's culture's sins. Or you somehow innately have just more worth and you're, you're just worth more. Or someone comes into church and, and we, we fall prey to that, that scripture there in James where, you know, it's one family and we're like, oh, have a nice seat, make sure everyone gets to know you, grab some coffee. Someone else comes and they're just not worth our time and energy to really get to know Fight that attitude. Here's one that kind of struck me, was convicting to me and still is, is you know, it might mean that we have to reevaluate some what we watch on television. Like I always tend to seem like violence is like the one thing in movies that's fine. Like that, that passes as long as there's not like dirty scenes. If there's violence, it's okay. And before long, you just become like a cheerleader and a celebrator of, you know, you're watching the movie, you're like, no, don't let mercy kill him. I watched that show 24. You remember that show when it came out? I mean, he's killing like a 24-hour span. He's killing someone like every 30 minutes. And by the end of it, you're just like, no, shoot him. No mercy. You're like celebrating it. And before long, you get sucked into this culture of violence and destruction. I'm not telling you what you can go home and that you can never watch 24 again or whatever. I'm saying take the law and let it serve its purpose. Hold it up to your life. Evaluate the decisions and choices you make by the law. Finally, it should produce boldness in our witness. That we might call people who are so clearly on a path of destruction and death with the message of life and hope. There's a biggest way to promote life. Share the gospel of the Lord of life. The way, the truth, and the life. I just want to close with this idea of worldliness. Again, I hope, I hope you will just take it. And Basically, my point here is that you will take the law and use it as a mirror. That you won't just quickly dismiss it. I was telling Adam this week as I was studying that this series is really different than I thought it was going to be. He sort of pitched the series to um, Todd and I several months back, what he wanted to do, and, you know, like always, oh, pretty much, that sounds great. And I think he had an idea for it, and it, it's gone at least different than what I thought it would be. And for me, it's been really eye opening and convicting. I don't know, I kind of thought it was going to be like, you know, Jesus is better than the law. Don't worry about the law. And it hasn't been that at all in my heart and life, as Scripture has shown clearly why. The same book I quoted from earlier, Unfashionable, he gives a definition of worldliness. He says, Worldliness is a laziness and sleepiness of the soul in which the status, pleasures, comforts, attractions, and cares of this world appear solid, stunning, satisfying, and affecting, while the truths of strip, Scripture become abstractions unable to grip the heart or guide our everyday activities. In America, the greatest challenge facing most Christians is not persecution, but seduction. When this world's pattern of life starts to seem normal, and God's law starts to seem strange, we know we have been seduced. And when this happens, Christians become miserably ineffective in making God seem all-satisfying. You're salt and light, and you're no different than anything else. You've lost all your saltiness and all your brightness. When the law of God seems totally archaic and a simple afterthought, and the message of the world today seems real and relevant and makes more sense, you've been seduced. The law simply seems like little more than an obstacle to your real satisfaction. You know that you have been seduced. Hold, again, let the law serve its purpose. It's so easy. I have seen through this series several general and a couple very real specific ways in which I did not think at all I was being seduced by the world until I hold the law up and I see that mirror and I see that I have fallen prey to the seduction of this world in my thinking. You review the, the commands we have gone through to this point. Taking God's name in vain. It's not just a simple, okay, I don't curse. It's Do, do you come and place yourself under the word and pay no attention and, and give it no attention and you sing and don't even think about what you're singing about and you pray and you don't even focus? Are you just flippantly using the name of the Lord in vain that way? Have you been seduced by the world? You've been seduced by the world in parenting. Have you been seduced by the world in in how you spend your weekends? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Does the weight and the glory of God, does does that shine upon your calendar, upon your budget, upon the decisions you make? Or is it just sort of like, okay, that's an obstacle to what I really want to do. So either I'll figure my way around it, I'll reinterpret the law, I'll just ignore it. And eventually we become seduced where we don't even think we are. I'm telling you, it was very revealing in my heart to use the law as a mirror that way and realize I've been seduced. This world right now, there's specific areas where it holds more weight and satisfaction for me than God does. Let the mirror of the law drive you back to the gospel To rejoice in the Christ, in the God who planned and accomplished your salvation, that there is righteousness in Him. And how then do I walk as His child, adopted, a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, in an age to come that is already upon us? How do I walk as salt and as light? Here's how you do it. Here's the substance, here's the action, here's the saltiness and the light. Now, live this way in the world, not secluded by everyone who doesn't keep the law like you do. That's not the point. By the grace of God, being transformed by the Spirit, having favor with God by Jesus Christ alone. Pursue the law that you might know how to walk as salt and light. And I just encourage you, I challenge you, let the law have its effect. Don't turn away too quickly because you don't like what you see. Don't turn away because you don't want to change anything in your life. Let it have its effect. If it means you don't watch that TV show that you're really into, maybe it means that. If it means that you change your travel days, maybe it means that. If it means a whole host of things, I'm not going to make all the applications for you. Let the law do it. But let it serve its purpose to drive you back to be salt and to be light. Do not murder Protect, proclaim, celebrate life. Do what you can. Don't have an attitude of violence, a heart and actions that are geared towards destruction and violence. Let's have a word of prayer. God, I thank you for your goodness to us. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy of our time and our attention. Lord, I pray as we go forward this week that the law would serve its purpose. We wouldn't get confused and to think that If I just keep the law, I'll be more righteous.